Speaking of shilling, what's that shirt you're wearing, Mike? Oh gosh, uh, what, you had what to is, do it right. Oh, hey, I wow, to, yeah. I mean, since how much they pay you? How now. much do they pay yeah. you to uh, wear that that shirt? One free shirt. That's <laughs> actually no. I think I paid for this one. I think whoa, I paid whoa, for this whoa. shirt. Actually, hey, yeah. you're getting free. You're getting free swag. If I don't get a free shirt by the time we record next, you're gonna have to find a, a new co-host. You're walking. I'm walking. Don't. I'm, walk, I'm playing hardball here. Don't tempt here. me. Don't tempt <laughs> me, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is going to backfire on you, I promise. <laughs> Welcome to The Voyage Podcast, a show that traverses the oceans of myth and legend through the lens of Catholic theology and philosophy. Come aboard as we set sail in pursuit of the heroic life and Christian virtue with your hosts, Mike Schramm and Jacob Platty. <laughs> Welcome back to this episode of the Voyage Podcast, which uh, I guess I'm not supposed to call it part two because we don't we can't do a part two anymore. But it is going to um, follow up a little bit from our previous discussion on just sort of the prophetic nature of mythology. And because there was so much kind of that we wanted to do uh, foundational background stuff, we didn't get to go into a lot of the um, biblical examples and really how they can be, uh, you'd say, I don't know, fulfilled or maybe um, what uh, paralleled to some of the more either modern examples of, of prophets that we would see. Uh, one of them being uh, probably the most prominent one that to both of our imagination is Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings series. Um, and so I wanted to kind of go through some of our Old Testament um, biblical prophets, actually some of the New Testament prophetic prophetic figures that we find and how did uh, Gandalf kind of like live these out a little bit in his character in whether you want to go the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, any of that stuff. How's that sound, Jacob? Well, let's just let's just go over the facts here. So your intention was to have a podcast about Gandalf. You were going to use prophets to do it, and namely biblical prophets. And then we spent an hour talking, and we didn't talk about Gandalf or biblical prophets. So now we're doing Does a second podcast. You? Now we're doing a second yeah. podcast. That's supposed to be what your first podcast was meant to be. It's it's that, not really a sequel. It's not really a part two. It's more like a remake, right? Or would you call I mean, it like a requel? You know I, how they I thought you were gonna call it a reboot. Re- like yeah, well, like they have like the soft reboots where it's like a sequel. Like they did a Texas Chainsaw uh-huh. Massacre sequel that was like just ignores all the continuity. I the Halloween franchise that, has done this like five times. I don't know if that's. I thought you were going to refer to it as the. This is the Rings of Power equivalent to our first episode, <laughs> which was the Lord of the Rings series. So any way you want to think like that, Mike. You know what? Whatever helps, Jacob. Whatever helps is fine with me. So hey, no, we're just anyway re- redo. This is the Hot Shots so, part part do of I, uh, our podcast. I tease Jacob uh, in our, our cold open, I guess you want to call it, um, referring to him as a mouthpiece because that is the, I guess, almost definition that you would give to a prophetic figure. Um, and not just in the Old Testament by any means, um, because obviously there were prophetic figures that would have been recognized outside of the biblical tradition. But that's just kind of the one that we're most familiar with and what we're going to talk about the most. I thought you were referring to my divine inerrancy, but I mean, <laughs> I'll give you all that too. So, well, where that mouthpiece idea comes from, right, is that he's speaking for, right, inspired by the the person that he's speaking for. And and obviously from uh, 
our Christian standpoints, the Old Testament figures would be that mouthpiece for God that that's um, representative for God. They also played, because we talked a lot about Canticle for Leibowitz and um, how the prophet has a wandering sort of role, uh, having to, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, in a sense, they're in the world, but they're not of the world, right? To kind of quote that very common uh, Christian description. I think it comes from Second Peter or First Peter or something, but that idea of being in the world and not of the world is a very kind of prophetic characteristic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, so sure. yeah, so they're wanderers, and then um, of course they're all uh, oftentimes associated with miracles. Not that that's necessarily the case, but it's almost one of those things where it's like it goes hand in hand, where you have this holy person of God. Uh, miracles are going to inevitably follow. Is that? I guess a I fair, think, you know. Yeah, it, this goes. Uh, this is an opportunity for me to double down on my old hobby horse of. I, I think that we have this dichotomy between the natural and the supernatural that is really modern and really recent and kind of inaccurate to how reality is. You know what you're pointing out is that people who are so close to God that they are His very like mouthpiece are also going to mm-hmm. people that are so close to God that they act in the name of and with the power and grace of God by yeah. by virtue of their by virtue to use that word precisely of their proximity to God their relationship with God and things like that they're ministers so of the sacred fire you know you they're they're say. able to they op and, and so saints as such take on this type of a a role for us in the new covenant right um mm. And and so the idea that you see miracles being worked out by saints and things like that, um, it's it's not. It's it's just an example of what it looks like when people have drawn so close to God that God starts to kind of pour out of them, right? Yeah. And so you know these types of things that you're describing that the prophets have, they're kind of like these outliers in the Old Testament, um, and the New Testament has ushered in a new age in which like we're all kind of prophets, or all called to be prophets anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't all have the same kind of like prophecy. Uh, though our last conversation, we talked about how prophecy can be just like knowing history and just like seeing well, the signs on the of the times, you know. And yeah, actually to that point, um, just as a really quick aside. So yeah, every, um, you know, at least the, the ancient historic liturgical Christians like Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism, uh, they recognize that you receive this prophetic um, charism or character at your baptism. So you're called to be priest, prophet, and king just by your baptism. But there's also a um, unique outpouring of the spiritual gifts of, of prophecy, uh, which, yeah, can, like you said, can be manifested uniquely depending on the person, just like any of the spiritual mm-hmm. gifts can be, right? So there's the spiritual yeah. gift of teaching, but not everybody is going to necessarily have that um, formal or specific role either. So yeah, um, prof- prophecy or prophetic gift would would be just part of that. And like you it said, it's not about me. necessarily knowing the future, right? But sometimes knowing history, as you said. Mm-hmm. Well, and just having uh, you know, just having a closeness to what's true, good, and beautiful, right? And and seeing mm-hmm. it, seeing it when you, it's kind of like to to go back to like uh, some Matrix stuff, you know, when Neo finally sees all like the digits flying down the walls and things like that at the end of the first Matrix movie. It's because yeah. he's like transcended his limitations and, and now is like kind of like one with the Matrix, so to speak, kind of thing. And now he can just like see things as they truly are. I, I think that's um, kind of a, an analogy for what I'm describing well, in, here. 
in that world, right, the real are the numbers, the combination of numbers. It's not the the images, right? Because it's very much a Plato's cave thing where he's mm-hmm. the one who only sees, you know, he's the one who not only sees the shadows, but sees the things behind the shadows. And in that world, it's, you know, what looks to us like real, but it's just a combination of numbers and letters and or a code. And so it's the, yeah, the prophet even though it doesn't have to be the um, exact analogy of, you know, you see the code in the matrix, it's you're seeing reality for what it is. And that well, goes hand in hand with seeing, you know, God for what God is or who God is. And and how reality is operating at any given time. You know, um, mm-hmm. a good example of this in the Old Testament, we're talking about prophets is, uh, I think it was Elisha, right? Who was standing before the armies of... Um, who were they? The Assyrians were coming to, and you know, he has the vision of like the angelic hosts all flying around uh-huh. him. Um, you know, those those hosts were always there. It's just that like you couldn't see it, like no one else could I see it. I think it might be Isaiah, eyes. but not that it's. I thought it was. I think that might be Isaiah, but not that we have to quibble about that. Yeah. Um. But, but seeing uh, the well, yeah, well, seeing I, the, well, rea- I think the you're angelic wrong. I think you're wrong, Shram. But uh, okay. not that we have to quibble about it. But uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I I'm, I get kind of bad when you get into the later Old Testament stuff. You always start reading the Old Testament, and then you like peter off by the time you get to the second half of it. At least that's no, that's you got what it. I've You're done. right. <laughs> that's what I've no. always done. Hey, um, I'll I'll you I I fact checked you. You're right. So go ahead. Okay. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you uh, for um, throwing that in there. You didn't have to. Mm. Um, but. Uh, I was just listening to, along these lines, I was listening to one of my favorite um, speakers. His name was Father Thomas Hopko. Uh, he passed in the, um, oh, it's probably about 10 years ago now. Uh, I This man has had such an impact on me um, in his discourse um, that I actually named my fourth kid kind of after him, <laughs> specifically Father Thomas. Um, but mm. uh, anyway, it's... We're in the context of recording this around the time of Ascension, and uh, he I was just listening to him speak about the Ascension and things like that, and he's talking about how, you know, and this is just saying what Father Hopko has to say. Um, if people have a disagreement about this, then I'm just, don't shoot the messenger, said Prophet Jacob. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like that people... A lot of the things that Christ did, like at the Ascension, people had to have like eyes to see it, kind of thing. And so, the idea that Christ, uh, as it's recorded in the Scriptures, like ascended into the skies, kind of thing, right, and behind clouds or whatever, um, he's suggesting that, you know, that's a vision that's given to people who had eyes to see and ears to hear, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I, I have that caveat: if you have a problem with this, take it up with like Father Hopko. Um, is because I could see that being controversial. We we do have a tendency to read scriptures with a, a like kind of simple literalism, which I'm fine with. I'm fine with that method of doing things. But I think that there's there's more nuance than that. Typically, if you, if I'm giving my honest opinion, and I, a lot of that I get from Father Hopko actually, because it's well, it, you run into that danger of almost it being like a like a self fulfilling, like a um, closed in sort of system where it's like, oh well, you just don't get it because God just hasn't given you enough faith yet. You're not special enough, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you're not this enough to have received the vision of Jesus actually ascending into heaven, to use your example, or you know whatever example you wanted to use, and 
that obviously like, you know, could be problematic because then it sort of becomes this like, well, how, you know, is it really even, it doesn't, it strikes, it strikes you as unfair where it's like, well then what's my, then I just haven't been given a chance to quote unquote right. have faith or to have eyes to see or ears to hear, um, to use that language. And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, to go back to, again, some of our foundational things about the, the prophet, one of the reasons why they were supposed to strike people as so weird is because it was supposed to like shake you out of the, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, if you can't tell with this crazy example of how this prophet is living his life, um, then yeah, then maybe you are, your, your heart is too cold or your eyes are too closed or, or whatever to kind of keep the, the image. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it also kind of, it shakes, it, it's for everyone, right? So, like, talk about, mm -hmm. uh, talk about um, John the Forerunner, you know, going out into the wilderness, um, the greatest of the prophets. He's, he's the greatest of the yep. prophets, you know, and, and it's funny because you might think somebody like Elijah or Elisha, who supposedly had twice as much grace, right? Or some of these, you know, Isaiah, right? These, like, big-name prophets. And it always struck me as... Um, odd how much gravitas was given to John the Forerunner when I was first yeah. coming into classical Christianity because as a Protestant, he's a cool character. He shows up at the beginning and then he kind of goes away and like he has a little cameo appearance, you know, later on out of jail. But like he's just not that big of a, he, he certainly doesn't have like the epic odyssey that someone like Elijah has or something like mm -hmm. that. You know, he's got this kind of minimal reality going on in the New Testament. He kind of, he's just like a setup for Jesus, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, but that's just not his relationship to historic Christianity. Historic Christianity reveres him as the greatest of all prophets. Christ himself calls him the greatest of all prophets. Um, and it's like, really? Well, and if all you, he did to, was baptize to... people and dress up in, you know, fur and eat honey. What? What's so, like, how yeah. does that compare to Elijah, you know? Um you know, to your point, I want to speak to that. Uh, as as I'm sure you want to do, if you go to the if you go to St. Peter's Square at the Vatican, um, they have the the statue of of um, St. Peter's, and you have Jesus in the middle. And the first one is John the is John the Forerunner before mm -hmm. any of the other apostles. And so if there's there's go, definitely that um, pride of place that you'll oftentimes see too. If you go into any Orthodox church, we have what's called that iconostas, the iconostasis. It's the wall of icons um, mm -hmm. between the sanctuary and the altar. And it is extremely consistent. It's also extremely consistent in a lot of our iconography as such that you will have, in our case, the center of that wall of icons is a door that leads to the altar, right? Um, but of course, mm -hmm. that's where the Eucharist is. And then right to, let's see here, I always get this as weird because it's mirrored, but as we're just going to go, as you look at it to the left of those doors would be Christ, right? Or he's on the right. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you're looking out at the sanctuary from the altar and then right next to Christ is John the Baptist, John the forerunner. And then on the left-hand side of those doors is the Theotokos, Mary, the mother of God. Mm -hmm. Um, and in our iconography, like if you look at an icon of the last judgment, you look at an icon of, uh, really all kinds of stuff. I think the, uh, the Paschal icon, the resurrection, I think John the Forerunner is right next to Jesus. He's right next to Jesus all the time in Orthodox iconography, but he's definitely right next to Jesus in every single Orthodox church that exists, as far as I'm aware. 
Like it's always Christ and John the Baptist by his side. There's um there's one more example. Uh, you're mentioning how yeah you'll have uh, John the forerunner and then um, Mary the Theotokos. So there's actually a similar one, uh, the Eisenheim altarpiece or the Grunwald altarpiece, where you'll have Jesus on the cross, and and it's an altarpiece that's supposed to be behind an altar, and you'd have Mary and John the apostle on one side and John the Baptist on the other side. Which if you you know you can tell that it's obviously not supposed to be a um, biblical literalism because John the mm-hmm. Baptist had been long dead by this point. But it is interesting that kind of like what you were describing. Um, and I think going into the whole like kind of iconic uh, description uh, or the um, uh, circumstances in which you would see it, it's supposed to be kind of a like heavenly sort of depiction or Jesus in his glory. And John the forerunner is always there, obviously alongside Mary. And what's interesting here is that it's actually Jesus on the cross too. But like this isn't a, um, you know, art history or uh, art theory uh, podcast by any means. Oh. But just to kind of add another example to uh, what you were, were were sharing. Well, you know, all of the iconography, and you know, so again, it's no, it's that's not a coincidence that in St. Peter's Basilica, what you're seeing there is just statuary in the classical traditional depiction. Like, in other words, um, that that was very likely not someone's just like, hey, I know, I'll put John the Forerunner next to him. Yeah, he's why drawing not? from a... Th- <laughs> yeah, this would be fun. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he's drawing from a very ancient liturgical tradition of depicting John as always seated at the um, left of Jesus, basically, because Mary is at the right of Jesus. If you're looking from the altar out to the sanctuary, well, and I think just a little bit of a little bit more background on the St. Peter's one too. Um, so it's the the St. Peter's Square was supposed to be designed as like if you you know how it kind of like makes two um, like semicircles going around, and then St. Peter's in in kind of the the back of it, and it's sort of like bringing you. So that was supposed to be uh, I think it was Bernini who who made those. It was supposed to be like arms that was welcoming people in, hmm. but the idea too is that. It's, it's Jesus and the apostles with John the forerunner because it's the idea about going out to bring others in. And so mm-hmm. that's another part of that prophetic call where John the, John the forerunner had it first, right? And then Jesus sent, you were talking about ascension, right? Yeah. Uh, sending out the, the apostles to do that same thing. So sending them out to the ends of the earth, but ultimately to bring them into the fold. And so that's why, at least in this um, example, it's John the forerunner with the apostles that they're being sent out, but it's in these arms that look like they're hugging you or bringing you in because that's sort of the the purpose or the idea. Yeah, I always, I've not studied kind of the, uh, not studied the architectural reasoning um, behind it, but I always kind of assumed that it, well, at least it invoked for me a kind of like Acropolis-like auditorium, you know, like you have mm-hmm. a kind of, you're walking well, into then, a stadium of sorts, right? And but the Pope like, does speak from the, yeah, to the crowds there too, so... But that none of that negates like that's I to your point is what I'm trying to say is that it feels yeah. like you're entering into a place where you're being invited to. Oh, with Jacob, when you, you know. when we disagree, people will know. It's sorry, it'll be <laughs> it'll be obvious. No, I, well, I know just remember yes who's the prophet in this relationship, folks. That's all I want to say. That's, uh, wait. Oh, you mean like <laughs> no. the corporate thing? Gotcha. Yeah. So, um. So we talked about, uh, of course, you know, clearly about, not the favorite since I don't have the sway. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so talked about them being exiles slash wanderers, right? Elijah was also not just a wanderer, but he was a, a uh, he wasn't a self-imposed wandering. He was an exile, right? He was chased he was, out. Yeah, he was cast out. Um, 
and and prophets certainly have have that component to them as well uh which you know we haven't again we're taking all this time we haven't even gotten to gandalf yet but do you see any of those <laughs> at least we're talking about old testament those, prophets now right yeah, or at least yeah. Saint John is kind of an intermediary, maybe. Well, no, he's on the list too. I just thought we'd get to him eventually, but you just kind of <laughs> jumped the you you. Yeah, uh, as is well, my want. That's you right. double jumped a couple of yeah, a p- couple mm-hmm. of other prophets we've overlooked. But I'm here um, to shake up the status quo, Mike. That's just my well, purpose. Is just very to shake you of out you. of shake you out of complacency with your outlines. You know, it's not this legalistic outline thing, Mike. It's about a way of participating. Okay. Oof. That was, uh, where's the lie? Gosh. Where's the lie? Yeah. Huh? Come on. <laughs> Little hamming it up over here. Dropping, the, dropping pearls. Yeah. So, um, so, so we have this, the exile slash wander and, you know, Gandalf is very much that wander, but he was also like sent out. If you want to think of, of kind of how we're sort of told the history, the, um, you know, the, the wizards all came to middle earth is there was very much a sending out and whether you want to take the, the rings of power show as, as your example, or if you want to consider that Canon, it was sent out in, in sort of like a comet. Right. But then they become that's this wandering. That yeah. That's how it is. I'm and not, then, a, I mean, you know, uh, that's fine. I, no. I, I, I didn't have any issues with him coming that way. It's an interesting take. Um, I honestly never really thought prior to it being depicted in a format of any kind like uh-huh. what it looked like, you know, the Astari, the, the wizards in middle earth. Yeah. The only thing we're ever described, you know, like what it's like at the, it's an appendix in the Lord of the Rings when they, when it talks about this, maybe I'm sure Tolkien talked about it all kinds of places. Right. But yeah, I know that probably the most prominent place, I think it's an appendix at the end of the Lord of the Rings books where mm-hmm. the, it talks about the coming of the Astari, the wizards, and but I it doesn't really it, specify mechanics does it it just says they were just sent from the the valar to no that's i mean there's been a lot of freedom or a lot of and so that allows people to take some liberties and stuff which you can come you can like it or not like it that's not you know not the the point of this conversation anyway my personal Um, my personal favorite interpretation of how i got there was kind of like um like megazords where you have radagast (laughs) in like a giant like mech eagle and then you have you know gandalf and like a mech lion and they all just kind of like come together over some rocking kind of 80s synth and okay. show up on the shores of Middle Earth um, as a team. That's always maybe just how you, I envisioned it. Maybe if you write that in like an Amazon review for a product, Jeff Bezos <laughs> will read it and it'll get to the right person. It'll get to the right person eventually. And that will be, you know, that's what we'll see in season two. I mean, you've got plenty of time. They, I think we they got maybe time. just started making it. They'll get some rewrites in there. So. Um, so, uh, and then of course, you know, like we've already said that the prophets were always associated with miracles, Elijah and and Elisha, um, definitely a lot of miracle stories with them, which we see sort of fulfilled in, um, well, John the forerunner is, is described by Jesus as almost like the return of Elijah, which the Jewish people had been waiting for. Um, the, uh, I don't. I can't think of miracles of Isaiah and Ezekiel off the top of my head, but they are two that have very prominent visions of God, and mm-hmm, and the sure. angels and of divine worship, um, and so you have this kind of mystical, you know, miracle sort of idea swirling around them. And of course, you're going to see that with the wizards, right? That that's always the mystique that the wizards mm-hmm. carry with them throughout Middle Earth. And so oh, Gandalf, good of course. Oh yeah. Go, 
Well, sorry. Like you're saying that you couldn't think of Isaiah or Ezekiel per se. They're more like visions and things like that. But Daniel is a prophet who is big on visions, but you also have some of his life story too. We really just don't have a whole lot of life story when it comes to Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel, I don't think. But, you know, you get someone like Daniel. Daniel, um, you know, mouth of the lions, you know, sealed up the lion's mouths kind of thing. Pretty miraculous stuff. Um Anyway, yeah, that was kind of a tangent, but go on. Just well, feeding, just feeding you a little, Mike. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so of course, you know the 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 wizards are all known for performing magic in Middle Earth. I mean, to various degrees and and all that. So, you can see that kind of prophetic connection there. Um, it's interesting, though. The, it's like a soft magic, right? Like uh-huh. this is this kind of like infamous dichotomy between. Um, and am I using their language right? Is it soft and hard magic? Uh, or soft there's basically a common parlance for this in like nerd communities um where you either have a system of magic that is like it's like harry potter magic where like you are just like making you're pulling rabbits out of hats where there wasn't a rabbit before um or there's like soft magic where it's 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 subtle and it's more of um you know you know, the examples given in like Lord of the Rings of Gandalf doesn't use a whole lot of like, unlike the movies, right? The movies, they depict him as much more active in his like magic casting because mm-hmm. it's a visual medium and it makes, I don't have a problem with it. It's, it. It makes it interesting. It makes him feel like a wizard and things like that. But for the most part, you know, it's like more like him capturing a moth and like whispering to the moth and the moth going to like, that's in the books. You know, the, yeah. the moth goes and or, or talking to animals or this type of stuff that it's 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 really nuanced and it's not very flashy, you know, um, and even more so, you know, Gandalf is famous for his fireworks. Right. And you mm-hmm. get the impression that his fireworks are almost taken as a kind of magic, as a kind of technique within the Middle Earth yeah. universe, which is accurate. I mean, even even to my vantage point, the use of the kind of like use of powders and material to create, you know, explosions and things like that. That's that's there's nothing unmagical about that as far as I'm concerned. And we Um, see that with Saruman, too, uh, later on. So it's almost like you see the the light and the dark side of that mm -hmm. techne. Right. And and one of them is used for. uh Well, like outside yeah. the fact that the ring like turns someone invisible, that's that's a kind of hard magic. But like um, the influence of the ring on people is kind of its soft magic. It's it's mm-hmm. almost psychological, or or it's 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 operating again. Well, once again, it's operating on the spectrum between what we consider quote unquote supernatural and what we consider natural. Right. Well, I think another example to that point is um, very often in the Lord of the Rings books they describe the the magic that Saruman is able to have with his words, right? That influence or that subtle kind of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, talking about how it, it it makes you like not think straight, and he'll whip people up into a cr- into crowds, or he'll make it, um, you know, have that manipulation that he's able to. And, and um, there's yep. even a line in the movie when they confront him right after the the sacking of Orthanc or the sacking of Isengard by the Ents, and they're like. Uh, don't you know? Don't let his words twist your mind, or something like. Doesn't Theoden yep. say that? I, I think, in the, like I said, I'm mixing up yeah, the books. Yeah, it but. would make sense if Theoden said it. Yeah, and I uh, I do get mixed up with the movies now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but hey, that's to the movie's credit. Um, but it's funny how 
you know, like I said, you have this to use, go back to your fireworks example, right? It's very much a techne, but you have Gandalf who is kind of like not just using it for entertainment, but actually using it to like bring community, like bring people together, you know? And part mm-hmm. of that is because of the entertainment. And then you have Saruman who's using it to destroy, right? Whether it's the, you know, destroying of Helm's Deep or any of that. So it's, it's becoming a weapon. And so there you can kind of see the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, but absolutely. And they're both also, considered they're both sorcery basically, right? Yeah. They're they're both um this this again, it's which is fine. That's a fine word. We can call we can call munitions sorcery as far as I'm mm. concerned. It is. That's what it is. Well, and we've we've what was it was it in the our our ring episode, our ring conversation where it's like if you you know, scratch uh, magic hard enough, you'll find the science underneath. But if you keep scratching the science, it'll eventually just seem like magic again anyway or something. 100%. So, yeah, yeah. And, it's not like, yeah. science is just descriptive. It's not explanatory per se. I mean, it's explanatory in the sense that you can follow the, the trail, like cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and well, effect. It'll give until you... Until eventually you get to, I don't know, right? Like it's, well, it's all it's kind it's of, still magic. It to to kind of go like it's it's sort of like when you distinguish um, when Aristotle gives the four causes like what we call science nowadays is really really good about the material cause but when people talk about things like magic they're maybe looking at more like the um, uh, efficient cause or whatever in terms of like who what's the power behind it or who's the power behind it sort of thing. You think but, that modern uh, people when they think of magic are talking about like efficient causes? Is that what I just heard you say? No. Oh well. So what's implied by like magic now is that it's more of the personality behind it. Like there's some agency, like I'm the magician and I did this thing. And that mm. would be more like magic the missile. efficient cause if you're, if you're looking at, um, you know, or, or even, yeah, when they talk about uh, something that can find it on its own, it's like the thing had its own mind, right? It was able to find its target, so to speak. And so it's, it's talking more about the efficient cause, whereas, yeah, uh, the material cause is just like, Okay, well, if you mix these two chemicals get together, what's going to happen, right? That's just the material. Yeah, like I have. Or if you, and... or if you break it apart into its atoms, or break it apart into its elements, or something. Hmm. But I don't know if I'm entirely following what you're saying, but we're uh, going to roll well, with it. I don't know if it'd be worthwhile to backtrack <laughs> no, it's and re-explain it. But... <laughs> I'm sure the audience got it. I'm just here to we're, dialogue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, admit admit naivety, admit ignorance. That's what I'm doing right here. Well, and to your and to be fair, it wasn't in the outline either. It's a suggestion <laughs> of the old noodle. I'm just so, slowly turning um, this into a magic episode again. I know. <laughs> it's, it's like this is like the third time that it's like, oh, I guess we're talking about magic again. Um so <laughs> well, you're the one that wanted to talk about Gandalf. He's a wizard, Mike. Okay, but the you're whole talk point about a is wizard that, without magic. The whole point, though, is that it's he's representing these this prophetic figure, and that prophetic figures are about more than just the you know performing miracles or the it's not about seeing the future or whatever. But uh, you mentioned something else actually in passing of the when Gandalf speaks to that moth to go tell the eagles right or whatever, mm-hmm. yep. and um, and then of course we see in the Hobbit movies Radagast will have conversations with the animals or you know talk to them, and um, there's something somewhat similar right because Elijah 
not that it, the Bible ever says he has a conversation with the ravens, but the ravens are sent to give him food. And so they're, they're given yeah. some sense of, you know, what you, whether you want to call it cognition or not, not, not that you necessarily call it like they have, Oh, God gave them rational souls so that they could go find Isaiah and identify, or sorry, ugh, Elijah and, you know, recognize him mm-hmm. and bring him bread. But there's this, there's this deeper idea of, because the prophet is so in touch with the source of reality that is God, then all of creation that flows from God, he's also going to be in touch with, or she's also going to be in touch with. And so that yep. would of course include the animals. And so we not only have stories with um, Elijah, but later on in the Christian tradition at post biblical, we have St. Benedict, we have St. Francis of Assisi, right? We have um, mm-hmm. all of these prophetic figures, Right who also have this special relationship with animals too. And I'm going to, I'm not going to name names because I'm going to mess up which saints did what, but there's tons of like Eastern European and Russian saints where they're like hanging out with bear. Well, St. Herman of Alaska, he, he's, he's I was, a name. I, th- I knew I there was a bear from. one. I knew there was a bear yeah, story. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was St. Herman. So if I mess that one up, I've got to turn in my American Orthodox card. Because uh, he's a big deal for us American Orthodox, but I'm pretty sure he was the one that uh, placated bears and things like that. But there's examples mm. of this also, like in the Russian tradition and things like that. And it's everything you just said, where you know people who are saintly, the animals help. You know, the, another example um, that's big in my tradition is Saint Mary of Egypt, uh, mm. who we we celebrate in our uh, Lenten cycle. Um, She's one of the big names. And uh, in that case, a lion comes out to help dig her grave. Um, but even, you know, okay. you think about Noah. Noah sends out birds. And for a long time, you know, the impression you get is that, well, the birds just come back to the ark because they have nowhere else to land, right? And and that's that's kind of true, I'm sure. And the, when the bird doesn't come back, it's like, oh, the man, land must have shown up. But you also have this idea with the story itself that like the animals come to Noah. Yeah. That that's before the flood. Before the flood. Before yeah. the flood and then but then at, and then during the flood the animals are working with Noah. You know like mm-hmm. uh it's there there's a reason why it's okay for the Noah story to be so prominent in children's nurseries all over the world <laughs> because otherwise <laughs> it's just this apocalyptic tale in which everyone dies but uh the the nice side of it is that you have saintly Noah with his menagerie of animals, and it's it's a and depiction it is supposed to of, be like a new Eden. It is. It's so, this, it's this yeah. garden. It's this Edenic kind of man living in harmony with the animals type situation. You know. So there again, I mean, if we go back to when we when we're baptized, we're given this um, office of not only priest and king but also prophet. And so it's being restored to something. And every time that we have the, whether it's Noah and the flood or later on, it was supposed to be kind of a trying to restore God, trying to restore everyone back to Eden. Now, when it comes to the grace that we receive at our baptism because of Christ, it's going beyond that restorative, um, that restorative nature, but it still means that it's building upon 
there was that prophetic nature that was already there. And part of that had to be with, you know, you were talking about Noah, go back to the Adam story too. The naming of all the animals is supposed to indicate that deeper, um, deeper relationship with creation. And so we see that, you know, as we've both mentioned, um, some of the Old Testament or, or biblical saints, biblical prophets, but then also some of these New Testament saints who had this prophetic character too. Well, and I like so, the, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the Adam naming the animals thing, because I've always kind of interpreted that as this idea that Adam is able to know the animal, right? And to mm-hmm. give it the name that's appropriate for it. Whether that's like God entrusting um, Adam to have a kind of like sense of create, like creative, um, uh, like does God sit back and like wonder what Adam is going to call him, you know, whatever, uh, yeah. metaphorically. Um, you know, or is like, oh, let's see what Adam calls this one. Let's see what Adam, or is it more like Adam is going to recognize and just intuit mm. like what the animal is. Um, and in either case, I mean, they're kind of complementary as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it's still a kind of prophet. It's still a kind of prophetic role. It's still a kind of like well, innate knowledge kind of thing. Yeah. Because it goes back to, um, are what we were talking about when it came to knowing the essences or knowing the causes of things is yeah. In order for you to give a name to something, you have to know something essential about that thing. And so, yeah, when we talk about, you know, Adam naming the animals, um, it spoke to that preternatural knowledge that humanity had before the fall. And part of that knowledge had to be with not just knowing, like seeing the, um, the externals, not just seeing like, Oh, well that, you know, thing has four legs and a tail, but knowing that essence of it, knowing the mm. essence. And that's why it got the name that it did. But all of this idea of, of like in the same way that the prophet is the mouthpiece for God and how you were saying how it's not just about being able to see the future or know the future, but it can also be about knowing the past and, and how, you know, humanity works. You're no, it's actually, there's an anthropology. You're knowing the essence of humanity and saying, because I know like something deeper about human nature, I can actually predict, right, with a lot of confidence, this is how things are going to go. And so that's really the kind of prophetic knowledge that we can oftentimes see. Not that we don't, we're not denying that there's some sort of like revelation that God is giving to these prophets by any means. For sure. But, but that's, that's quite the, essential that's sort of that the, there's revelation yeah. at play. But um, there's also, um, there's also just the genuine transformation of the mm. person into an ever more godlike creature um you know and that so it always begins with grace on god's part it always begins with revelation it always begins with god moving first and showing things and things like that but then i also think that it slowly transforms us into people who it i think that life i honestly you know i always take what i say with a grain of salt here but i think that sainthood type of sainthood that we revere in the classical tr- traditions um, is is a kind of constant intuition where mm. where people enter into a place where they're so close to Christ and that Christ is so alive in them that they just are always acting according to instinct, always acting according to intuition. And so when they, when people, when you hear stories of folks coming up to a saint and the saint having some kind of, um, you know, knowledge of the individual, right? Like some kind of like, uh, whatever, telepathy or something like that. Mm. 
you know, I don't, I, I think that it's just like a kind of like, it's just like, I, I guess I, I, I've kind of just like fancifully wondered what it was like, what it's like to be a saint, like what these lives are like kind of thing as I've mulled over the stories in my head. And I, I yeah. think it's like, they just know, like, it, it, it's just yeah. like, these are the words that come out of my mouth because those are the right words to say at this time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, <laughs> fascinating. No, you know? yeah. I mean, it's really neat. Well, but uh, no, and that's it's a it's a um, like you said it's it's in it's primarily a gift, right? Or or uh, principally a gift, but then instrumentally, we're the ones that kind of cooperate with that gift, and that mm. can be done through. I mean, a lifetime of you know, in in whatever saint's case, a lifetime of prayer, lifetime of study, a lifetime of just observing and and being in touch with the real world, right? And so yeah. that's how they're able to in a sense, at that moment, whenever the moment is necessary, kind of tap into it, so to speak. Um, one last, so, you know, another one that stands out, another connection to uh, Elijah. So there's, of course, that famous episode where um, he's uh, competing with the prophets of Baal, at the, mm-hmm. you know, about the, the sacrifice. Oh, yeah. And if, how can you not forget Gandalf talking about being a servant of the sacred fire? And yeah. so there's very much, you know, that prophetic element of, tapping into, you know, our God is a consuming fire according to Deuteronomy and Hebrews. And so having something, and then there's that, the scene of, do you remember that story in the desert fathers where the one monk was um, looking for advice from the, from the app, from the Abbot father. And his response is why not be utterly changed into fire? And then mm-hmm. his fingertips yeah, yeah. Uh, glow like lamps, like the menorah. Uh, is that and, Saint um, Macarius maybe? But I don't remember. I don't remember either. there being a name to the story, honestly. Oh, I, I, okay, maybe not. Um, it might be. It's it's sort of like you get the feel that it's being told like a parable. I thought, but I'd have to look it up again. Um, but uh, there's something about you know tapping into because, like I said, the Jewish tradition back in Jude- Deuteronomy, the Christian tradition has continued that through the letter to the Hebrews that God is a consuming fire. There's something about fire that not even outside of Ju- Judeo Christianity. Um, you know, people have recognized something divine about fire, so to speak. And sure. so the prophet is going to be able to tap into that, whether we're talking Elijah or we're talking Gandalf. Absolutely. I, honestly, again, this is all wrapped up into the imagery of theosis. This is all wrapped up into the imagery of becoming like yeah. God. And God is a consuming fire and a refining fire and in uh, all that language. And so that, that, you know, fire is is one of the most kind of quite literally like kind of fantastic elements, right? Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's not like rock. It's it's not like a solid. You know, um, the, it's ephemeral, right? Um, and I think we're just mystified by it. Certainly, cultures from all around the world have always been drawn to it, to both its source of goodness and also its uh, inherent danger. Right, which is again mm-hmm. something that you can absolutely talk about God as is that it's, it's it, magical he's a net to good. use your words. Yeah, it, it's magical. Fire is super magical, right? <laughs> um, and uh, it, it so anyway, like um, when you get into the stories of the saints and things like that, um, shining with with divine light or being like fire, right? Um, I think those are really just languages that describe the same reality. Um, mm. in the New Testament, you have the transfiguration of Christ 
as an example of what his saints are, um, you know, what their destiny is, right? Is to, to be like him. Um, and we see what he is, you know, we see what he, the transfiguration. Um, and then when he comes back, um, resurrected, you know, he, they don't recognize him. Right. Um, uh, but there's insinuations that, um, there's hints of like the transfiguration at play in some of that too, even yeah. though he is, he's not like shining bright, like, or else they would be like, Oh, he's shining bright. Um, that's true. Isn't it? Does he shine bright when he comes back in like the end of the gospels where they talk about this stuff? I mean, um, I know he like I mean, shows up in the room. I know that he he's in the garden when the women are coming back from well, the empty tomb. There are there are scenes that give you the hint that um, there's something different about the way he looks because Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him, and then the two disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him, and so it's not using necessarily the same language that, like you said, the language that's used in the transfiguration, his face shining like the sun or his clothes becoming dazzling white. But Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like there's a, maybe an allusion to it, to something like that. Mm. And one occurrence that comes to mind is uh, his revelation of St. Paul, right? When, when St. Paul encounters the the resurrected Lord uh, and he's blinded, and then he's blinded by the light. Right. And then, and his appearance to to removed. John the Apostle in the book of Revelation uh, is very, it's supposed to kind of point you back to his appearance at the Transfiguration. So yeah, that I would say is a very clear um, parallel, uh, which, I mean, John would have been one of those three that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. So, And I do, these are, going back to that that Matrix analogy, these are the apostles having true vision. These are the apostles seeing reality as it truly is. These are the apostles seeing Christ as he truly was. Um, and, and all that stuff, you know. And it's interesting to think, even even from a scientific standard, there's lots of different, like, frequencies of light. There's lots of different methods of seeing reality and uh, layers to reality, you know, whether you're talking about, like, the quantum layer or whatever, um, the cosmic layer, you know, where depending upon like your size, <laughs> like your perspective, yeah. reality is kind of like relative to like the size of what you are. Um, and yet it's all the same reality. Um, and so again, to my mind, you're still just talking about how reality is just super weird, way weirder than we intuit when we're just like, kind of like sleepwalking through life. Um, mm-hmm. But if you start to like study the nature of things as, as God has revealed it to us through our rationality, uh, natural law stuff. And then as you start to continue to study, um, you know, the revelation of Christ and uh, the stories of the saints and the stories from the scriptures, you just, you recognize that we've just not plumbed the depths of any of this grand mystery that is our lives, Right. And at the end of the day, that's what's so magical about everything. And that's why we're all prophets, even if we don't mm. act like prophets or think like prophets or view ourselves as prophets. Um, in this new reality that Christ has ushered in, uh, we all have this mantle. Some of us have it have a, a natural knack for it, right? I think that's what the spiritual gifts are that St. Paul talks about um, and that the church is always kind of held that people have different charism and things like that in the same yeah. like i'm an artist like i i have an, an innate ability to like draw pretty well um but my child can draw pictures too 
they might not look like my pictures. They might not be as accurate or as, you know, we may not be able to tell the difference between those pictures, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Hey man, some of those toddlers are making good money in the modern art circuits these days. I know. Why aren't you recording your kid and putting it on YouTube? Just have him draw it, you know, and that's what I I need to, uh, yeah, absolutely. I need to monetize, monetize your kid. Monetize. That's right. Isn't that why you, (laughs) what's the word I'm trying to, I'm trying to find, uh, exploit. There you go. I have all these natural resources to exploit. Um, that's what kids are for exploitation. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, Jacob, like you struggled to come up with the word exploit. <laughs> it's, it's cute. I have that's to put up cute. appearances. Oh, it's just so, it's just so hard for me to imagine such a concept. I just, that's, yeah. What, it's like, I couldn't even would, think of the word of it. Who would exploit anything? Certainly not I. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, you know, so, but everyone, so anyone can, anyone can draw right how how well they communicate with the drawing is whatever up in the air um some people are, are have a knack for it and i do think that the prophecy is something that some people have a god-given knack for in a way that others don't but in some sense we all have the spirit of god as christians um and the potential for any of the spiritual gifts and you know saint paul says to covet the ones that are the most important all that that sounded very much like a closing of the show but <laughs> we still have more to talk about so i don't know if maybe you want to no, like move hey, things what, around what, after we're done like, well here's uh, the question what else are we going to talk about now that's not going to be just like a diminishment from exactly the, the, so the that's why we have to like splice the rest of, of this just, in uh there's no Jacob's way this is being, this is this is unedited. This is this is exactly if, how people are going to receive this when it goes to. When it's it too goes bad to, that we don't name the chapters because we could have called that Jacob's soliloquy, and acting <laughs> students could have studied it for years to come, and that would be their senior thesis uh, in their acting school. So hey, I wanted to get to all. Jeremiah, if it's okay with you. Uh, <laughs> Jeremiah was another Jeremiah. example we haven't talked about yet. I'll so give a second a, soliloquy at the end of that one too, and it'll be just as oh good as gosh. the first. <laughs> so uh, why I wanted to bring him, he's a, he's a, a rel- somewhat unique prophet um, because, well, he, he's all about the impending threat of, of destruction and exile, right? He, he's the one, mm. he's the last one before the Babylonian or the, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylon Babylonians, and then the Israelites going into exile. And, um, and that's obviously the first huge, like once they get to the promised land, this is like the first huge thing that now they do return. And, but then they're of of course, they're never themselves again. They're never the same after this Babylonian exile. And, um, because they're always overpowered, they're never in the place that they were during the time of David and Solomon, things like that. And what's, well, why is such an important example too, or, or at least how he connects to Gandalf is, you know, you have this. Gandalf always has this reputation of it's like he's the he's the messenger that everybody wants to shoot, you know, because he's mm. the one that's accused of because he's the one telling them the hard truths, he's the one yeah. blamed for when those hard truths come to fruition, right? Whether we have um Theoden who again was under the influence of Wormtongue uh, at the time, but yeah. we have that conversation where he's accusing him of being the bringer of bad tidings. And not yep. just the one trying to warn you of it. And then Denethor. Denethor, yep. it's the same thing, right? Now, Denethor doesn't have anybody to blame but himself, but... Well, he well, has the Palantir, the same but there again, he has that's, the Palantir that was his and, and, 
which is kind of like a fortune teller's orb, right? So that's kind of so that's a good kind of plays kind of a good, in the sandbox um, of what we're. It's talking kind of about. a good uh, contrast, though, right? Because you have the real prophet, and then you have this like false prophet that you try yeah. to almost like mechanize or like well, the kind planter. Of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, no, when you think about it like yeah. that, you have the the true prophet and Gandalf. You have the false prophet and Saruman working his schemes through Grima and Theoden. And then you but have he had access the, to the planter too. The, so the, that's the another fallen, good. I meant to say the the fallen prophet kind of thing with Saruman, and then the false prophet with Denethor, who was trying trying yeah. to take the power. Because at least Saruman was given his mission as well as Gandalf was. He just yeah. uses it nefariously. Um, and then Denethor tries to take the mantle onto himself, kind of thing, mm-hmm. with uh, using the tools of. Um, magic the tools of the wizards and things like that well it's funny Um, you say that because he almost tried to like people would see him as trying to usurp the kingship too as well as the prophetic right by taking the planter that's true that's a really interesting point i guess we need a denethor episode that's right that's what we need to do lord of the rings all the way down baby um (laughs) but uh the prophet is never welcome in his own country right that's what yep. uh, Christ said. And so you have these peoples who are meant to be um, uh, welcoming of Gandalf, welcoming of the messenger of the Valar and things like that. Uh, they're the source, they're, they are the peoples of, of goodness in Middle-earth, right? With uh, Gondor and Rohan. And, um, but they, they do not receive... Gandalf well, at least in the context of the Lord of the Rings story. Um, mm. And the elves, they do. The elves typically do. But even the elves kind of like side-eye him sometimes a little bit. Like, what are well, you up to now, and, Gandalf? And to your point, in a sense, that isn't, Middle-earth isn't Gandalf's home. It isn't any of the Istari's home. So he doesn't yeah. ever feel welcome, but it would make the most sense that he would feel the most welcome with elves because they're the most otherworldly of the sure. creatures of Middle-earth. So it does kind of fit. I mean, like you said, it was never perfect, but it was. it's never going to work with anybody, right? He's never going to feel totally at home in Middle-earth at all. He's always a wanderer, even until he goes to the, you know, goes to the Grey Havens at the end, so... Sure, sure. Did I? I didn't mean to like. I just no. Was, actually, I didn't mean to cut you off. I there was no cut off. No. I'm done. <laughs> oh, no, no uh, monologue on that one. Wait, so, no soliloquy. Is this where I give the second soliloquy? Is this, I, no, are we wrapping yet. up? What uh, else you want to talk about? No, this is your well, show, Mike. Your show. Oh, Go on. Well, What's next on the? Can outline? we get that in right? Can we get that in writing, please? Um, so. I hope this is being recorded. So, uh, our producer heard that. Um, so, uh, (laughs) we talked, yeah, we talked Jeremiah, you know, giving the uh, impending threat of, of destruction and exile, how he's ignored or rejected, which very much happened to Jeremiah. Um, you know, I was trying to think of like, how do, how do the prophets like live this out sort of, uh, you know, you think of, well, Gandalf the gray, um, you know, becomes this like fighter for the good side or for truth. And he, he, he sort of like dies or he has this kind of death scene with the Balrog comes back as Gandalf, the white, the head of the order. But he's, he's sort of like, it's not that the Istari were ever supposed to be like warriors. And maybe you could chalk this up to like the whole Peter Jackson trying to make it an action movie. But Gandalf does serve a role as, as this warrior many times throughout the the Lord of the Rings too. And so you have this mm-hmm. like kind of like spiritual warfare, spiritual combat 
that you'll see in the lives of, like I said, the, um, the prophets who would have to cast out demons or the apostles in the New Testament casting out demons or the lives of the saints um, casting out demons as well. And so there's, and of course, him fighting the Balrog. I mean, you don't get much more demonic than that figure in the Lord sure. of the Rings Sue. So you have um, well, that sort depending of, upon, I guess, theme or motif. But Well, I was about to say, you know, in the books, it's, they make him more action-packed in the movie. But then at the same time, the books do talk about him, like, smoting him down upon, smoting his ruin upon the mountainside or something like that. Yeah. Which I probably only remember because they do quote that in the movie. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure yeah. it's taken from the book, um, which is such an awesome line. Smoting <laughs> his ruin. Um, but uh, upon the mountainside. That was sick. But, uh, yeah, they go, they give it quite the quite the epic battle in the mm-hmm. um in the movie version the books don't really go into all that and really all you really see in the books is him kind of like circumventing the balrog by breaking the yeah. bridge of Khazad-dûm and causing him to fall into the pit kind of thing um mm-hmm. but there had to have been some kind of fight or else there wouldn't be the smiting upon the ruins yeah. of the, the mountain with his ruin so there had to have been some some warrior just, things just another going on. excuse to say the line right that's, that's <laughs> how many times can I say yeah. smote his ruin upon the mountainside in one episode? We did not have a bet beforehand before we started recording <laughs> of how many times you could fit it in. The uh, uh, so then um, we've we've alluded to John the Apostle as well because even though like he had this prophetic role, um, especially in writing the Book of Revelation, because now what's interesting about that is um, anyone will tell the context of him receiving that vision and when he wrote Revelation was when he was in exile. So John himself was a wanderer at the time too. And that's when he has this apocalyptic prophecy. So again, it, you don't yeah. think of it purely in terms of doom and gloom, but, and, and go back to what we've been talking about with prophecy. It's not just that he had a crystal ball and he was looking into the future. It's that he was seeing the spiritual reality for what it was, yeah. right? The, the veil had been cast aside and he was seeing in a sense, what was eternally happening, whether we'd want to talk about the lamb being slaughtered, um, slaughtered from the foundation of the earth and how that becomes the, the mode of worship. And you'll have a lot of, especially, um, you know, Catholics who read, uh, Scott Hahn, who's a biblical theologian, talk about how the book of revelation was like the blueprint for the mass almost. And so if John is having this vision of the worship in heaven, that's what the church used to, in a sense, put together the worship on earth. And, and I, I don't say that as if it's like in con- contradiction to Eastern Orthodox divine liturgy, wherever oh, no. it corresponds, we're super, it's going to, yeah, we're super on the same page there. hundred percent. But then, yeah. but that, then yeah, the, like the, the fighting of the book of revelation is liturgical. It's a liturgical yeah. text is minors. My also, uh, as when it comes to the prophecy side of, um, the apocalypse, um, again, so we'll do, we'll just do an old whole episode on apocalypse one of these days. Right. Uh, it should be a pretty interesting episode. Um, but as it overlaps with prophecy and things like that, my understanding of the book of Revelation is that, yes, it is a depiction of the final days, the end times, but mm. A, we are in the, fi- we've been in the final days, the end times since Christ arrived and then St. Peter says it again. on Pentecost. Yeah. He says right. we're in the last days. Um, so we're, this is the second half of the story. The last half of the story, we're, we're, we're in the final days and in B it's a, this covers something that we talked about last conversation. It is that kind of eternal cycle of mm. what spiritual warfare looks like. And so what yeah. you're seeing in the book of Revelation is not just a prophecy of the future that isn't currently happening. 
it's a depiction of reality as it really is. And what apocalypse mm. actually means is, well, you know, revelation. Like you're revealing, unveiling, you're revealing, yeah. unveiling what's actually true, what's actually there, right? Um, that's not, that's really not meant to be like in the future. Like I'm going to show you the future. It's, yeah. it's like I'm going to show you the, the nature of things, the nature of reality itself. And that will be the case at the end. The, the final cycle um, will look like that too. Um, so the, the last thing uh, before, we, before we wrap up, because I know you've been looking forward to it, you've been trying to wrap up for the last uh, 20 minutes now, <laughs> is uh, so you want to know the, the giveaway so remember, we've been saying how the prophet is the one who's in exile, the one who's the wanderer, the one who... Da, 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 da. So what is Gandalf's elvish name? Mithrandir. Mithrandir. You didn't even let me say the it. The gray. Jerk. No, I was rhetorical. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it means... I thought you were trivia. You your, your, yeah, Do, I was like uh, well, trivia. Well, this can be your trivia question. What does Mithrandir mean? Uh, the Ooh. wanderer. The Gray Wanderer. Wanderer. That's why he's Gandalf the Gray. So, Mithrandir the Gray Wanderer. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So, Very good. Well, uh, th- that kind of brings us to a, a final close. Jacob, let me have the last now, word you, in now for you, once. Now you give us a little <laughs> quee, Mike. Yeah. And it better and, be better um, than my wrap-up from 20 minutes ago. Because... No, 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 no. I'm going to let the people go back to, you know, finishing cook, cooking up their dinner or working out or whatever they're doing <laughs> while they listen to us. Uh so thank you, Jacob, for, for coming and having the, completing this conversation, how we got to talk about a few more um, specific examples, especially from the Bible and how they connect to one of our favorite prophets in Gandalf the Grey, the Grey Wanderer. And uh, look forward to talking with you again about any of those other topics you brought up that I'll have to prepare for and all that stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah. we just appreciate you guys coming to... Yeah, oh gosh. Uh <laughs> Appreciate you guys coming to uh, to to listen to these conversations as um well as meandering as they sometimes can be. I want to encourage you guys That's to the fun part. Uh, give a give a five star rating to the sh- like, subscribe to the show, uh, leave a positive review. Jacob and I always get really excited about it, especially Jacob. He always has to take screenshots and send them to me. Look at look at what's nice thing somebody said about me. I'd be like, oh, I send it to my why mother it just, every time. Why? Yeah, <laughs> well, and I say, see, mom's mom, like, see, I'm not that bad. <laughs> And then you look up at the username and it says Jake's mom uh, 55 on it. And it's like, oh, Jakey's mom. Yeah. Don't you go by Jakey? Like, Isn't that how it is? Yeah. Yeah, that's how it so is. So we want to encourage sure. you guys to uh, to like, subscribe, five-star rating, all that, and, and keep coming back. Tell others about it. We, we um, just really like making it, having these conversations. And now that we do this, Jacob and I don't have to, you know, meet outside of these work-related things. So that's also always a nice thing, too. It's really convenient. So, yeah. Yeah. So thanks, I get guys. to I get to keep Mike in his place. I only have to deal with them for like an hour, like once a week. We're gonna so. cut the last word out when you said that. Thanks for listening to Voyage Podcast. The Voyage Podcast is a production of Voyage Comics and Publishing, which seeks to create exceptional entertainment informed by Catholic values that inspire people to live a heroic life. Voyage Comics seeks to advance truth and beauty found in powerful stories. To learn more, visit voyagecomics.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 